Green Green Left Weekly Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Um, so for our program today, we are joined today by myself, Jacob, um, as your presenter. We have Chloe, who will um, be here for the first part of the program um, where we'll be entering Farhad. And then we have Sue Bolton, who will be the other co-presenter for our program. So, yeah, good morning, everyone. Hi, everybody. And hi, listeners. Oh, wait, sorry. Oh, yes, all good. Um, sorry, sorry. Yeah, uh, the... yeah, all our mics are turned on, so it's all good. Sorry about that. Um, I just didn't hear you that clearly actually just before. Um, so just before we start and announce what's coming up on the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Now, to um, to go, um, just give a bit of an uh, outline of what we have coming up on our program. Um, we're very happy that we're going to be having uh, an interview with um, Farhad... Um, what was it? Sorry. Farhad Bandesh. Um, Farhad Bandesh, um, who is actually... People probably know he has been actually... I think he has been on a number of free CR programs. He is one of the... Um, he was he fled Iran in 2013 and was imprisoned on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea for almost seven years. And then he was imprisoned for... In detention in Melbourne. Um, for, oh, and then he was released... He was mara- he was released from detention in 2020 and, you know, since then has been very outspoken about uh, refugee rights and the, and the horrors of... Oh, of detention. And then we're going to be playing, um, we'll be playing a pre-recorded interview that was just done yesterday and it's going to be produced for Green Left. But Green Left's Peter Boyle did an interview with Arul from um, the Socialist Party of Malaysia and basically discussing the kind of upcoming um, elections in Malaysia. So Malaysia is actually going to be having um, federal elections quite soon. And um, yeah, there'll be a bit of um, discussion about the politics of that. Um, and then, yeah, that's what we have kind of lined up. And then we're going to be covering some of the kind of latest sort of developments and um, in the past kind of week. So I think I was going to pass on to Sue to kind of talk about probably one of the main sort of headline stories. Well, the big, one of the big things which has happened over the last couple of weeks is the murder of a 15-year-old Aboriginal um, boy called Cassius Turvey in Perth. Um, after, you know, he was murdered, uh, a group of men got out of, a, out of a car, unleashed a torrent of racist abuse against a group of Aboriginal boys coming home from school. Um, they, uh, kicked the crutch, kicked one young guy who was on crutches and pushed him over and stole his crutches. And they chased, they grabbed metal bars and chased the group of kids including Cassius Turvey, and they bashed him with a a metal bar, which resulted really tragically in in Cassius' death a few days later. Um, This was 
a really, really terrible incident. Um, unfortunately, it is an incident which is well known. Um, the sort of racist fear that's engendered in a lot of Aboriginal people, um, especially in um, regional areas, although this was not a regional area, um, this was Perth, um, but also scandalously, the police, the West Australian Police Commissioner said that racism, like his first comments about the death, was that racism wasn't um, wasn't a factor in the death of Cassius Cassius Turvey, despite the racist torrent these um, this group of men unleashed against Cassius and his friends, but also the other, you know, it seems really weird, um, but the police didn't even contact um, Cassius' mother until five days after the incident happened occurred, um, so they didn't um, complete the interview with Cassius when he was in hospital when he was still. Uh, alert and able to speak and, and talk to the police about what had happened to him. And you can't imagine this, um, the police having this lax kind of attitude if it was someone from a well-off, uh, especially a well-off white background. Um, this unleashed, this death was so shocking that it unleashed a huge outpouring of sentiment um, with thousands, probably tens of thousands around Australia as well as around the world um, attending vigils um, in memory of Cassius Um, and you know his mother has been really vocal um, really vocal in the media Um, but in Melbourne I was at the vigil at the Aboriginal Advancement League on Wednesday night, there must have been a couple of thousand people there um, it was, you know, it's a huge outpouring and I think it was really important that this outpouring of grief and support for this family and solidarity with all Aboriginal people um, was um, shown all over Australia. Yeah, I think you make a lot of good points there, Sue, because I, yeah, I can kind of just imagine that, you know, if this, if what happened to Cassius happened to like, you know, a white teenager, you would actually, I could actually imagine that there would be almost a national emergency almost declared in the particular city that it might have, or town or area it might have taken place. The police would have been, um, asserting themselves in the media, um, trying to say, you know, we're going to bring, you know, whoever did this to, um, to justice, um, because, you know, one of the things about the nature of the police is they are, in a sense, you know, a, a very political institution. They'll always seek to take advantage of any sort of, um, sort of incident, uh, in a sense, like any tragedy to actually bolster their image, like in a sense, like if there's like a, a prominent sort of murder that has happened, they'll always try to position themselves as, oh, yes, we're going to be base game. But when it comes to someone like Cassius Turbe, because he was Aboriginal, you know, there's clearly the, the, the line of the police is, oh, well, we, we can't speculate on the motivations. Um, but I also think, you know, the, the amazing turnout, I think, is very good because it actually gives a message and actually shows that, you know, we don't accept um, that 
we in this society don't accept this ra- um, the racism that exists in our society. And also, I think there's been some very good quotes um, that have come out of some of the vigils. In fact, um, um, and, and one of the one of the um, one of the I'm trying to get the quote here. It was kind of reported um, in Green Left here. Um, and it was basically, I think it was a statement. It was basically a, st- um, it was basically, um, responding to, um, Western Australian Police Commissioner's comment that Cassius was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The speakers at the vigil in Sydney said, in response, no black child is ever in the wrong place at the wrong time on their own land. And I just think that's just a, such a powerful quote that just encapsulates, you know, this a response, a strong political response to this, to the to the racism of the the BA police force. Well, I think just uh, um, I think you make a good point there because, and I think the turnout at the vigils was really important. The fact that tens of thousands of people would have come out all over Australia, like it was truly amazing. The wide range of people wide range of areas where there were vigils, including in Victoria, places like Portland and uh, other cities, not just in Melbourne, because it is um, an implicit pressure on the police to abandon their ra- the racist assumptions underlying their policing, because it, there are racist assumptions underlying their p- policing. And I think this situation of Cassius Turvey, both... Um, the response to the attack on him, but then their lack of contact with his family after he'd been bashed, um, severely bashed, um, when he was still in hospital before he died, um, and then after he died. The attitude of the police was absolutely astounding, and I think the turnout actually starts to put some pressure on the police because the police are... You know, the police do implement, um, you know, racial stereotyping as well as other sorts of stereotyping. Okay, well, we're just going to have to conclude this discussion, um, but obviously this is going to be a kind of ongoing kind of discussion um, on our program. And, yeah, I think there's obviously a lot of important issues that flow out of this. Now, I'm just going to go play a quick announcement, um, and then we'll go on to our first interview of the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. You're back on 3CR. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and our first guest on the show this morning is Farhad Bandesh, who is a Kurdish musician, an artist, and an activist. 
and Farhad fled Iran back in 2013 and was imprisoned on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea for almost seven years, and then imprisoned once again in detention here in Melbourne for another two years. Um, welcome to the show, Farhad. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Farhad, I mean, we've got a few questions for you this morning, um, and I, I guess the first one is, well, what's happened recently? Um, you know, after spending, I think it was a total of 2,737 days um, in detention and then being released a couple of years ago. Um, a few, a couple of weeks ago, um, sorry, a couple of years ago you were released, but a couple of weeks ago you, re- you were recently told that you will not be settled in Australia and have a few days to decide where you should go. Um, and that's after you received a letter from the Department of Home, of Home Affairs. Can you just please give listeners a bit of an overview of this serious situation that you and hundreds of other refugees are facing right now? Yeah, it's really sad after so many torture in Australian detention, they send letters to me and other refugees. We cannot stay here longer and we need to apply for another country, New Zealand or uh, another country, third country. So I think uh, this is another torture. We just want to uh, move us from some place to another place. And someone like me who wants to go anywhere and it's to be, you know, really sad. We build a kind of life here. Um, yeah, it's yeah, um, yeah. We're sorry to hear um, that you are um, facing this situation, Farhad. Um, are you? I know that you are currently resisting this attack. I mean, you, you were in the um, the news recently saying that you were going to challenge the the government on this, which is great. Um, but you know, we we do think that the temporary visas that many refugees have been put on, including like you know, and especially the people on bridging visas, um, chev visas, we do call them prisons without walls because, like you said, it is an extension of the torture that you've endured. Can you tell us what it is like to live on a bridging visa? Bridging visa is uh, kind of uh, another torture under this. Policy, uh, we're not allowed to study, we're not allowed to get qualification or their only reception on this visa, uh, which is maybe sad when you get a uh, refugee status. The policy or the law needs to look after you as a human being and refugee to help you to build your life, not give you a prison visa. Um, Fahad, it's Sue here. Uh, with, there's three of us in the studio. Um, I was just wondering, what's the situation when you're working and you're on a bridging visa and the bridging visa runs out? Um, are you able to keep working while you apply for a, um, apply for your bridging visa to be renewed? Kind uh, of, yes and no. The answer is yes and no. There are some uh, jobs you can work. There are many jobs you need to get a qualification, which is 
read a story and you cannot even think about it or apply to do stuff. So this is another process. You are in limited uh, life living in Australia with lots of restrictions. Yeah. So, um, so Fahad, um, it's Jacob here. I want to kind of ask kind of like the next question. And, um, and this obviously flows on from, I think, your, obviously your experience of, um, of being on a bridging visa, because this is in relation to the government's policy. Labor has promised to abolish TPVs. However, they've not said anything about bridging visas, um, which obviously includes refugees who came here by boat, um, or the Medirac refugees who are locked up in um, detention. And what do you think about, you know, despite all these promises about this, the ALP's kind of government treatment of refugees? Uh, first of all, I want to mention this. This policy comes from the uh, government, from Labour, and they designed and created this cool policy for uh, torturing innocent refugees. So they promised to change some uh, a kind of law to bring people in their lives or giving them hope. So they start giving some refugees permanent protection and to some of those who are just a couple of hundred innocent refugees, they not giving permanent protection. I, I don't understand these policies. So they still continue. They still continue this cruelty against human beings. Yeah. Sorry, I think I interrupted you there, Fahad. Did you um did you want to continue? Oh no, that's fine. I mean in addition to that, the you know, the Albanese government is really continuing this um the torture of refugees. There are still hundreds locked up on Nauru and Papua New Guinea as well, um, who really need um are in critical need of permanent resettlement. Um I guess we wanted to know a little bit more about you as well, Fahad. You consider yourself Kurdish, and as we know, the Kurds are an oppressed people, um, you know, who have experienced massacres, and, and Kurds in Iran have suffered deep-rooted discrimination. Um, their social and political and cultural rights have been repressed. Can you tell us a little bit about the Kurdish struggle and also... Um, you know, about the protests in Iran, that the mass uprising there in response to the killing of um, a young woman, uh, Amini, who was who was Kurdish. Yeah, uh, the Kurdish people are struggling and suffering under uh, four countries, so it's really uh, that these people are still fighting for their freedom for more than 100 years. Uh, in Iran, the Kurdish people even not allowed to think about their culture or history or talk about or practice the Kurdish dancing, music, and uh, these days it's critical in Iran, actually in Kurdistan, um, more because of the condition, they killed a 22-year-old Kurdish woman because of uh, she shouldn't have had that right to choose can have a job or not. You know, it's 
we have a culture. So we have everything we have. Uh, uh, this uh, kind of uh, problems for years and years, they kill her to stop, think of, stop the Kurdish girl not choose any wearing they want. So the protest in Iran is really getting bigger, bigger. It's not only in Kurdistan, it's everywhere in Iran. And they want change. They don't want this government for 43 years. <clears throat> and they want to um, have a better country with equality and uh, freedom for everyone, which is this day. Jinjian Azadi is Kurdish slogan because you know it's everywhere and translated to Farsi, English, and the other languages in the world. And uh, they want freedom for everyone and equality for women, men in their society. Just one other question about the uprising in Iran. Um, someone I was speaking to the other day was uh, from Iran um, was saying that really he felt that this was um, way the current wave of protests and uprising is really like a revolutionary situation and it is way more than um, in the last two times that there have been big protests. I'm wondering if you might comment about the scale of the protest movement and how hopeful you are that this might actually bring down the regime and uh, achieve real change. Yeah, exactly. There's a revolution in Iran, and this revolution is really different because the women in Iran, they live and they fought it, and the men also... uh, are part of this revolution in Iran. And nearly for more than 40 days, it continues these protests in every way, in Kurdistan and Iran, which is really amazing. And at one side, if we look at it, it's really bad because of the government. They're killing innocent kids, 12 years old, 13, 16, 14, in the street. They go to the school and touch the kids and kill them. We need to stop this genocide. So this is revolution going to be the, one of the, the really powerful revolution in the world because women are fighting for their side. Men are beside them and fight side by side. Yeah. So thanks. Um, so Farhad, um, I want to go t- change it. Um, go to an, I guess another topic. And um, I guess going there is going to be a protest happening this Saturday at two p.m. Um, no one left behind. Permanent visas for refugees at the state library. And of course, we are um, at Green Left Radio. We're wanting to encourage as many people to attend the protests as as possible. And I guess. I, w- I want to hear your comments, I guess, on the, what the power of protest means to you and, I guess, what it has meant while you're de- um, detained and how important this protest is on Saturday. And, I guess, why is it crucial for us to keep up the pressure through people power on the streets and other forms of resistance against the government's ongoing attacks on refugees? 
our right. So we need to use uh, this powerful uh, movement to break the uh, evil down. And with the protest that we show the solidarity with those people of suffering, uh, and we need freedom for those and rights for those and bring life back to those people who are suffering. So the message is, first of all, I think we need to educate those people, have a bad picture of refugees, bring them and teach them and educate them. And then it's going to be a really uh, a great moment to fight against this cruelty and we can change for better life for everyone. Thanks, um, thanks Fahad. We might be wrapping up the interview soon, um, but just before we do, would you like to give us any last comments, or um, yeah, did you have anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners? Yeah, no. refugee. I always say, I say, refugee are people, so people who care about other people. We need to be united and fight for human rights. It's about human rights. We need to stop this cruelty and change a better life for those people who are suffering in detention and even in the community. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Fahad. It was really great to have you on the show, and you know, we here at Three CR, we really hope that you find certainty, and um, you know, you get to. You know, you get your permanent protection here um, after all you've been through and, you know, after going through the terrible detention regime and now on this bridging visa, um, you know, solidarity to you and all the other refugees that have to go through this and also solidarity to the Kurdish struggle. But before you, we let you go, Fahad, we want, we're going to play one of your, the, like one of the songs that you, I'm not sure... Um, if you wrote it, well, when you wrote it, but maybe you could give our listeners a bit of a background. It's called Cruel Policy. Um, and maybe if you'd just like to introduce it before we play it. Yes, Cruel Policy. Uh, this song I released while I was in detention. And Cruel Policy to uh, seven of my Australian crew offshore detention. And for, for actually for all of the refugees. I released it in anniversary of my fault arrival to Australia. So uh, this uh, song is written by myself and Snow Quincy. Uh, we wanted to show uh, what dark policy is, a dark time in Australia history. Thirteen of uh, our friends have died because of this policy, and we want to stop this policy. Mm. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Farhad. Um, we're going to go playing um, for our listeners. We'll go start playing the song now, um, Cool Policy by Farhad Bandesh. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR, and I'd like to thank Farhad um, for being on our program again. Thank you very much for the, the interview. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Farhad.
The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Re- um, Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And you're just listening to Cruel Policy um, by Fahad Bandesh. And now um, for the next part of the program, um, before we play this pre-recorded interview that um, um, that has been recorded for Green Left, um, I wanted to be- give a bit. I wanted to have a bit of discussion about probably one of the more exciting developments that has, I think, happened in this past week. Although it also present, it's also a sobering result in some sense as well. But um, in the in the Brazilian election, the second round of the presidential elections um, happened um, um, just on I think just on I think a few I think it was just earlier this week. But basically, it was a runoff between um, between the Workers' Party Lula da Silva and um, and um, and 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 the competition between Bolsonaro. And Lulu, and now everyone kind of knows, a lot of us probably are aware about how, what, how dangerous, um, Bolsonaro is. You know, he's one of the most right-wing, um, um, presidents that Brazil has ever had. And in fact, he has essentially been pushing a Trumpian kind of authoritarian sort of agenda. And Lula, Lula was actually backed by everyone on the left in the progressive uh, movement, and he won the second round and probably the most important round of presidential elections. It was a close result. Um, the gap was actually just 1.8%, but the fact that, um, the fact that um, Lula won, I think, is an inc- a big, a, a big defeat for, um, for the far right in Brazil. And I think it also it also has to come into context of the fact that actually um, even even around the time of voting, uh, the Bolsonaro government was actually attempting to repress the vote, and in fact they actually had during the time of voting in the northern parts of Brazil, where you know where a lot of Lula's kind of support base is actually primarily based, um, there were actually police kind of like. Um, um, attempting to prevent um, people from voting, um, voting with um, with she- um, with checkups and 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 so on. So I think it's like, yeah, just I think this, despite obviously all the kind of opposition, I think the fact that Lula has won is quite incredible result. But the fact that it was so close, um, and the fact that in the in the kind of parliament, in sort of like the actual Congress sort of part, um, the Bolsonaro Bolsonaro's party still holds quite a lot of seats in the legislative councils. Um, yeah, that um, there is going to be an ongoing kind of struggle um, of um, from the um, from the left against um, Bolsonaro, and I just think that's. Um, but the fact that they Lula won the president retreat, I think, is a good is a good um, step forward. Um, Sue, do you sort of had any comments? Well, I think it is a tremendous victory to um, push back the far right. As you say, it's not a thumping victory against the far right. Um, you know, there's been, you know, Bolsonaro's had a massive propaganda campaign and so forth. I mean, probably just to put it a little bit in context, though, um, you know, 
when Lula was last in government, I mean, definitely it was, you know, a massive step forward. I mean, the Socialist Party of Brazil involved a lot of um, left-wing activists and revolutionaries in the construction of the Socialist Party of Brazil. Workers' Party of Brazil. So yeah. Workers' Party of Brazil. But it was... Um, it was more of a left social democratic government, like it wasn't like a revolutionary government or talking about social transformation. But, and I imagine that will be the case with um, Lula's government this time around. But still, it is um, an absolutely mass. You know, it's a great victory to push back the far right. And of course, the worry though is that. Lula doesn't take power till the beginning of next year and what Bolsonaro will do, what changes he'll do in the meantime. Um, even uh, today I heard a radio, uh, heard an interview on mainstream radio talking about the fact that um, some of the right-wing forces that are burning down the forests in the Amazon have stepped up. They're burning down the forests um, in anticipation of Lula taking action to stop them doing that. And so I can imagine that will be happening in other areas as well, this two-month gap between when um, when Bolsonaro has, uh, finishes up uh, and when Lula actually takes power. And now, yeah, I think there's also another context. I mean, one interesting aspect was... Um, of Lula's victory was there were actually a number of liberal, um, like a lot of liberal capitalist um, politicians, especially even from imperialist countries, that actually did congratulate Lula on his victory result, which is actually, you know, in some sense that would be probably a good thing in terms of, um, in terms of holding back any sort of coup attempt by Bolsonaro. But also the other danger though with it is it does indicate an element, um, basically the, the fact is the capitalist class, I think, within Brazil are actually quite divided. I think there is an element by which the, the capitalist class has actually gotten a bit sick of Bolsonaro and, in fact, they're wanting to get rid of him um, because I think even Bolsonaro kind of represents a political program that goes too far for a section of the capitalist class. And, of course, it also has to be put in context as well for Lula's victory. I mean, Lula, as you said, yeah, um, the Workers' Party isn't, isn't a revolutionary party. It's a social democratic party. And probably one other danger with, um, you know, how Lula, the Workers' Party, actually built its coalition in this election is, you know, it was, in a sense, a cross-class kind of coalition. And, in fact, it's actually enjoyed kind of some support from, you know, it it just from some of the right-wing um, elements um, within um, within Brazilian society. And, of course, the capitalist class's sort of position actually on this, and they've actually said it quite clean, cleanly, actually, is that, yeah, we will support Lula, um, but we're going to be in opposition as soon as he take uh, as soon as he takes power. So I think that's sort of an indication of some of the the big kind of divisions that I guess are happening in Brazilian society. And I guess probably the task of the left is we actually have to build that the left in Brazil actually has to build something that is independent uh, from the Lula government. Um, and actually, there has to be there has to be an emphasis on building independent mass movements of struggle and change um, to actually counter against what the capitalist class is going to do attempt to do because in a sense uh the capitalist class have a lot at stake uh, in a country like brazil which is like a home of massive resources um especially the amazonians and you know the, the fact that that is go obviously it is a very significant country as well to the geopolitical interests of u.s imperialism and so on so i think there's obviously 
a lot of contradictions and conflict. And I think we probably should have, you know, we should probably um, make some space for our program in the future to actually potentially be able to talk to a socialist activist in um, Brazil to actually unpack a lot of these different aspects of actually, the... Actually, I think that would be really useful for us to do that because, um, the, the, you know, it would be good for people here to have an understanding of what the political issues are in Brazil and about the the struggle that's going on there that will need to go on there despite the change of government. But I think another reason why it's so important to the victory of Lula and the Workers' Party of Brazil is also to try and stymie the U.S. imperialist project in Latin America and to at least have an alliance between some of the more progressive governments within Latin America even though, you know, some of them are not revolutionary. Yeah, although, I mean, to be fair, though, it's, as you sort of said, the Brazilian left Workers' Party government has always been probably the least, probably in mm. terms compared to the other pink tide governments, it's probably been the one that has been less willing to sort of challenge mm. um capital um and it's obviously had a more conciliatory kind of approach and that has always been that was actually in a sense a bit of the context for how bolsonaro was able to rise because um the successor to lula um dilma actually just got undone by so much of the the corruption sort of scandals etc that they weren't able to nest and you know they weren't necessarily able to um mount an offense against um the kind of um, anti-democratic nature of the Bolsonaro, um, Bolsonaroism. So I think, yeah, there's obviously a lot of challenges kind of there. Anyway, um, we might just close this kind of discussion um, just to play our pre-recorded interview. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And let's play a quick announcement. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Now, I'm going to be playing this pre-recorded interview that was done by Peter Boyle from Green Left, um, and it is an interview with Arul, um, who is a leading member of the Socialist Party of Malaysia. And the context for this interview is actually about the upcoming um, elections um, that will be happening in Malaysia. I don't know the kind of exact date um, of the elections, but they are basically... Basically, all the parties are actually going into um, into election mode around Malaysia, and there's obviously a lot of different kind of political issues that are kind of happening around Malaysia in relation to this upcoming election. So, Peter Boyle is um, discussion with Aru will actually will hopefully kind of enlighten us about some of the background to everything that's kind of happening. And um, yeah, it's also been something we've previously covered on Green Left Radio in, in the past. So, hope listeners enjoy the interview. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. 8.55 a.m. 
Okay, welcome, Arul. Um, first of all, this uh, general election that's coming up, it's a snap election. Why did the government call a snap election? Okay, election is due somewhere next year, May, May or June. And, um, but you see the, in the, but before this general election, there were three state elections, which the National Front, Barisa National, the current ruling party, which was also the party which ruled for 60 years in Malaysia, won, um, won, uh, won quite good. You know, they, they regained two-third majorities in, um, in what you call that, in Johor, Johor State election, before that in Malacca State election. So in this, so they wanted a general election simply because this is the best timing for them. And also, because there is what is called in Malaysia known as the court cluster. These are people like uh, Najib. The current uh, Najib is already in jail. Some say he's not really in jail, but he is supposed to technically in jail. Then, of course, you have uh, Zaid Hamidi, who's the president of AMNO, who's facing 47 charges. So all indication is he's going to go in next, you know. So his faction is pushing for a general election because it's only if they get a general election and they're very confident of winning it and they know that uh, this is also the monsoon season, water turnout won't be good. And in the last election, Pakatan won because water turnout was something like 80%, 82%. But in the last three state election, water turnout was like 65, 60%, 65%. So with, with a low voter turnout this is the best time they can take over the government because the current government is a mixed government between two coalitions Barisan National and Perikatan National okay they're all former breakaways from UMNO so uh, so now they don't have a clear two-third the attorney general is someone chosen by the previous government by Perikatan National Muhyiddin Yassin so in that in that sense you have a situation where he needs to call this election so that they can win and then maybe change the attorney general after that <laughs> and then maybe uh, drop the charges against them. So there is a, 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 at least one agenda is to try and stop these uh, prosecutions for the, the very, uh, well, open corruption of the Najib regime. But yes. will they possibly also gain from um, being seen to have at least, uh, you know, successfully prosecuted Najib? Will they? Who will get the benefit for that? In the public's mind, that was a big event in the last uh, year. See, that's why uh, that is the test we need to see because all the previous uh, election, Najib was the, still outside. He was the main campaign person for, for the National Front, for Barista National. This time, Najib is inside. And of course, uh, what they initially said was, Ismail Sabri, the current prime minister, will be the future prime minister if they win, you know. So Zahid was giving that assurance, and Ismail Sabri was trying to say that he never intervened in the court process. It will be a clean uh, AMNO after this. But the problem is very recently, just uh, yesterday, some of the ministers in Ismail Sabri appointed 
cabinet was not given a chance to defend their seat in the coming election. So they were dropped. So everybody knows now Ismail Sabri won't be the prime, might not be the prime minister. And, and that is now, uh, might be used to say that, you know, Ismail Sabri won't be the prime minister. You'll end up with Zaid Hamidi. So you might as well don't vote for Barisan. So this is the post Najib. This is the first election after Najib in jail. So I think the Pakatan Harapan is, uh, or, uh, and Perikatan National are really trying to work on these numbers. But we also have a, a very different scenario this election because this time is voter, uh, voters are automatically registered. That means once you have an IC, before this you have to register into the electoral roll. No? So those who don't bother to register won't be in the electoral roll. Now in this election, everybody is in the electoral roll, including those 18 years and above. So uh, we and we don't know where are these young voters going to vote. You know, that is something untested in a general election. Another problem also is uh, 125 seats out of 225 seats are concentrated in semi-rural and rural areas. So indications are Pakatan Harapan might win the popular vote but will lose the election because uh, most of the automatic registration, most of people work in urban centers. They work in towns. So they, they'll be voting in uh, Pakatan stronghold. So uh, the scenario is like that, you know, most of the most of the think tanks are saying that this will be a hung parliament. And, uh, and most, most likely, after the hung parliament, the Perikata National and the Barisan National will again group up together. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to another issue that has been discussed in the media quite a bit. Um, and that is discussions about whether Pakatan Harapan was going to make an uh, election pact with PSM and also with another group called MUDA to, so that you would have seats that they would not contest, giving you a better chance to run. Now, tell us the story of this. Uh, you know, what led to this speculation and what was the final outcome? You see, in, in Malaysian election, you follow the first past the post elections. In the first past the post election, smaller parties cannot survive. <laughs> okay. And that's the fate of PSM in the last election. So a lot of, uh, uh, our friends, supporters, civil society movement always want to see PSM in Parliament or State Assembly because they think we have quali uh, quality candidates and good policies. But they know we can't win any elections because uh, we are not part of a larger coalition. In Malaysia, only coalitions come to power. No single party has ever come to power ever before. So in that sense, PSM looking at the three existing coalition, one is Perikatan National, which is all uh, blamed as the Sheraton move, those who betrayed the earlier government, so uh, they are very unpopular. The Barisan National, the right-wing, corrupt, uh, original, um, traditional party in Malaysia. And then you have a new party, uh, new coalition started by Mahade called Gabungan Tanah Ayeh, you know, the peoples uh, of the earth kind of movement. And this Gabungan Tanah Ayeh is a, a coalition of Islamic and Muslim parties together. 
So these are the three big coalitions and Pakatan Harapan. So Pakatan Harapan is of course the most progressive among the other four parties, coalitions. So PSM went into, we wrote into them for an electoral pact. Muda wrote into them to join the coalition. So what, what Pakatan did was they rejected Muda's application to join the coalition. But they agreed on electoral pact with Muda and with PSM. But when, but when we went into seat negotiation, finally they, they didn't want to give PSM uh, any single seat. Okay. Some say it's ideological. Some say the DAP is blocking. They don't want another socialist party inside, you know, because before DAP was the socialist front, you know, socialist front was the main uh, party then. And then when the, when it was clamped down by the government, those seats were taken over by the DAP. Some say DAP is a social democrat party. A lot of people say it's a right wing, more, more centrist to right, you know, but those are arguments given. But, um, so, um, but there was a lot of hope given in the media as if the electoral pact is going to work. You know, a lot of people were welcoming it at the last, and also the Pakatan was having serious internal problems trying to get seats for their own members, a lot of fighting and all that. Muda managed to get about five seats. Not from PKR, they got it from uh, Amana, one of the coalition partners. Uh, they got all uh, very weak seats. In the sense of PSM, we didn't ask much because we knew our bargaining power was not so strong. We didn't ask many seats. We also asked seats which are um, not easy, which is not won by uh, Pakatan Harapan. But six days before nomination day, they just called it off. You know, they, they just said there's no seats. So, and we called off the pack because we say, what is a pack without a seat? Because there's nothing there left, you know. So, we called it off. And uh, so, we have to move on. It's a lesson for us that, you know, you have to build your own strength you have to you have to build your well, 222 uh, group yeah well before i ask you about psm's plan for the elections uh tell tell us a bit about muda because most people overseas have not heard of this group uh, uh and uh why why were they offered some seats even if i i think you meant they were seats that would be very hard for them to win is that correct uh uh, who are they and what is their politics? See, Muda is a very young uh, party made of very young people. The leader is uh, Said Sadiq. Said Sadiq uh, was formerly a member of Basatu. Those people, many people used to call him a blue-eyed blue boy of Mahade. But then he didn't join Mahade when Mahade left Basatu and formed his own party, Pajuang. Said Sadiq didn't join them and he formed another party called Muda. And Muda has got a lot of interesting people. You know, you have some progressive uh, young youth who are in Muda. Some of PSM good friends are also in Muda. Uh, a lot of, and, and they said we, we are fed up with the old politics. You know, they look Malaysian politics as old people politics. Mahade, Anwar, Lim Kitsiang. You know, they look, this, these are all like dinosaurs in Malaysian politics. They, so they put forward a very interesting program. But they're very good in social media, you know, and in the social media, their TikToks gets a lot of traction. But I wouldn't say really whether they will get support in the areas, you know, they're not really a party grounded in grassroots work or what, but 
on the social media, they appeal and their policies are quite good, very multiracial. So in that sense, um, they went into the first election in uh, Johor State election. But they formed an uh, electoral pact with Pakatan Harapan in um, in about seven seats, uh, six seats they had an electoral pact, one seat they didn't have, you know. So in the six seats, they won one seat, but they lost five seats. The other one seat, they also lost, but they did pretty well, you know, they didn't lose their deposit. So I think uh, for Pakatan Harapan, it was, uh, and they are very strongly backed by the DAP, you know, and, and the DAP and some party, they, they feel it's good to have them in. To, to get the, but of course there's a lot of resistance by the youth wings of the respective parties, the youth wing of DAP, PKR, Amana. They don't like this. <laughs> they find this as a competition. So, but for us, PSM actually, uh, we have a good relationship with Muda. We did, uh, we, in our, within PSM, uh, we do communicate with Muda and, and we do uh, have an understanding that we should work on issues together. Yeah. So uh, just for the sake of our uh, overseas audience, uh, Muda means youth, right? So it's yes, uh, yes. It, uh, uh, the p- appeal is to a younger generation of voters. So um, now let's go to the question of what is the PSM going to do in the election, given that uh, it no longer has any prospect of uh, having a clear run you know, in, in any seat. What's your, and you, I, I understand that your leadership has had discussions over the last couple of days. What have you come up with for these elections? We, we have, um, we had very short time, you know, after we were, um, the, when the electoral pact didn't work. The party decided, had a discussion with our national committee had a huge Zoom meeting with all members can join, you know, and, you know, and it was quite a difficult task to get consensus. Of course, there were, there were two kinds of feeling within the party. One is to just stand in our strong areas and, and see how how well we do or go into new areas, you know, because we were looking, uh, balancing this thing. So we decided to take the tougher road. Now. That means we decided to stand in two seats. One is a one one parliament seat in Rambau. It is a new state which we have never stood before. Peter is important for us to spread the, our ideology to a new group of people other than in our existing place, you know. And and then you know in existing place people might be start accusing us of trying to split votes and all that. And you know you go back into wasting because the election is just two weeks time. In two weeks, what what is our focus? So we wanted to put our manifesto, okay, this manifesto, which is very people-oriented manifesto, and we thought let's put two candidates who are uh, very um, two activists. You always see PSM doesn't have politician; we have activists. So one is one is uh, Tina Garan, and we are standing in this parliament seat in Rambo, which is a huge seat, which has four state state constituents. And um, so we thought the entire party will move to this Rambau seat and work there for the next two weeks. Another seat is a state seat in Perak, Ayakuning, where uh, Bawani will be the candidate. And Bawani is, has been, it's a hometown. So both these are local candidates. So this time there's no like heavyweight, Dr. Kumar is not standing, I'm not standing, you know, there's no. But we're saying that PSM has candidates, we have quality candidates. 
and we are we, and we are brave enough to go to rural Malay areas to spread the, our idea, you know. So this is our minimum program in two weeks, hoping hoping to we we find it is better than not to sit out from the election. That's another view, you know. You know, elections are so expensive. You need at least hundred thousand ringgit to sit in a constituent. But but what was interesting is the minute the electoral law with, with Pakatan went off, there was so much of sympathy and support for PSM. People started to write in and say, "Hey, I'll pay the deposit for your my party. I'll pay so much money. I'll contribute. Give me your give me your you know." And in the last, when we decided yesterday, when we don't want to stand in Pakatan seats. Suddenly, the whole social media, you see everyone praising PSM, you are the most principled party in this country, shame on Pakatan, you know, you don't know who are your friends, you know. So the, so, so the move we took, I think, is a quite a popular move. But we have to see um, that you cannot um, if you rely on, on bigger parties just to get seats. So I think the bigger challenge for us to... After these two weeks, is to focus on really building on standing in more seats and and uh, building well, a new leads, coalition. That leads to the to the next question I have to use because okay. very often in in discussions about elections, you know, all the all the games are being played, and we're talking about that. But I want to ask, what are the are, are the main issues, uh, the important issues for the ordinary people? in this election and how and what are the kinds of uh, solutions or answers the PSM uh, is going to put forward on these main issues? You see, on the mainstream, uh, the main issue is Pakatan and Parikatan National is don't bring in Barisan National. If you bring Barisan National, the one MDB scandal, everything will come back. Najib will be given pardon, he'll be back. So, uh, so the main issue on the mainstream is corruption. Uh, but PSM is has been, of course, uh, talking more about um, job security. You know, because job security is is a lot of people have lost jobs, and with the new gig economy and all that, actually, uh, people don't earn a stable income. So we have put forward a program on job security, on climate uh, emergency, because we are facing floods, serious floods, you know, and, and I think PSM is putting forward a very strong case on uh, climate emergency, climate uh, change. And we also um, have put forward a number of um, things like um, food security, you know, why why you need to change this palm oil uh, and have food uh, plant uh, more local uh, plant more food so that you increase the food security of the people so we are putting forward um, those issues like housing the basic issues and other parties are also talking about food security especially because the prices of things have gone up quite quite a lot but the main argument is still about corruption. Which is the best prime minister? Is it Anwar Ibrahim, Muhyiddin Yassin, or Ismail Sabri, or Zaid Hamidi? Or of course, there's another person who says, if he's chosen, he'll be the prime minister, Mahathir Mohamad. 
Thanks, Arul. I think that uh, gives us an idea, and I wish you uh, all the best in your election campaign. And uh, it is, it is, it's very good to see that, um, but this, you know, even if you didn't get something out of the pact, you got a lot of good publicity. And, uh, I think you won a lot of goodwill, uh, through the process, uh, that over the last few weeks. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. And you're just, um, this, you're just listening to an interview with Aru, um, who is a leading member of the Socialist Party of Malaysia. And they were just having a discussion about the Malaysian snap elections that are actually going to be held on November 19th and discussing kind of all the kind of political issues that are kind of flowing out of that. So that will, um, we'll, we'll probably have more further discussion and update on it as the, um, closer to the elections. Now it is, um, 8.0, it's 8.04 a.m. Um, so I sort of might be time to go into the green left kind of activist calendar to, um, highlight some upcoming events. Now the first uh, event, um, I want to sort of highlight is, um, the ref, there's going to be a, is going to be, there's going to be a rally tomorrow, um, titled Tear Down, um, the Flemington Community War. Um, uh, not Flemington Community War, Fle- the Flemington Flood, um, the Flemington Flood War, which is, um, something we've actually been discussing on Green Left. In fact, I wrote an article about, uh, the Flemington kind of flood war. And that's going to be happening on, uh, 11 a.m. on, uh, the Footscray Park and Gardens. And it's being organized by the Tomorrow Movement. If you happen to live in Geelong, um, there's actually going to be, uh, a, uh, no gas, uh, a rally organized by No Gas Geelong. Um, basically the No Gas Terminal and Picnic and Rally. It's Say No to Viva. And that's going to be at, at 11 a.m. tomorrow at the Steam Packet Gardens. Also happening on Saturday is um, the refugee rally, No One Left Behind, permanent reasons for refugees, and that's going to be happening at 2pm at the State Library. And then some other events kind of happening is um, there's going to be an event, uh, there's going to be um, an event, Woman Life Freedom Behind the Uprising in Iran, and that's going to be happening on Tuesday, 6.30pm at the Resistance um, Centre and Bookshop. And there's going to be a panel of speakers, including... Um, including some speakers from the Iranian community who'll be speaking to that. But yeah, all those sort of details just being confirmed right now. Um, and then on, um, and then on just some other events to sort of highlight. Um, Sue, do you sort of have any events on the top of here? I think those are the key ones. The event on Tuesday, the 8th of November is actually a public meeting about the uprising in Iran and, um, with, um, activists speaking who uh, have been involved in organizing the protests here in Melbourne. And I think that will be really interesting for people to come along to. Um, people will be able to get some more of the details from the Green Left Activist calendar. Um, so definitely have a um, search for Green Left and the Activist calendar in Melbourne and find out the details there of the speakers. Hmm. Um, and then another event to highlight is on November the 10th from 8.30 to 10 a.m., um, which is, I think, what's that time of the day? That's going to be uh, a Thursday. Um, on Thursday, November the 10th, um, from 8.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m., there's going to be a protest, protest union busting and workers' abuse at um, a- Ansel AGM. Um, union um, busting and abuse of workers, including forced labour and stolen wages, are rife in the PPE supply chain. We are protesting at ASL's AGM and calling for justice for Ansel workers in Sri Lanka and anti-union policies by Ansel and other PPE 
PPE companies, an end to forced labour and respect for human rights in the PPE industry. So that's going to be at the Park Hyatt Hotel, 1 Parliament Square, Melbourne. And, yeah, that's happening from 8.30am to um, to 10.30am. Um, Sue, so do you sort of have any other extra information you want to add about that campaign? The Ansel campaign? Yeah. I mean, really, this is a very long-running campaign, which has been going now for several years, about which involves um, solidarity and support for uh, workers, trade union leaders in Sri Lanka, who've been sacked and excluded from their jobs for a couple of years now. Um, and these um, these workers worked for Ansel in in Sri Lanka, uh, but the international campaign has sort of broadened out a bit beyond the situation of those particular workers uh, because Ansel operates in other countries, Malaysia and other places. And so the international campaign that's developed has, um, you know, is highlighting the situation for all workers for Ansel. But um, there's still also a focus on trying to get these workers in Sri Lanka reinstated, these trade union leaders. Okay. Um, so um, I think we'll play... Um, um, that, I think that um, wraps it up for the Green Left kind of activist calendar. Um, we'll probably have more events to kind of announce that are coming up. I just thought we'll just highlight those events. Um, we'll just go... You know, we'll just play a quick few announcements. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and we're very happy to have um, Peter Boyle joining us, um, who is a long-time um, peace activist, uh, member of Socialist Alliance, and also is a regular contributor to Green Left. And 
Peter Ball actually just recently wrote an article for Green Left titled The War Madness of Stationing USB-52 Bombers in um, Australia. And this article kind of responded to uh, the United States' plan to deploy six nuclear-capable B-52 bombers to the Tyndall Air Base near Darwin. Now, um, Peter, um, I would like to sort of start off, I guess, the kind of discussion of, I guess, what are your sort of initial kind of comments and your analysis of uh, this kind of plan by the United States um, on, and their deployment of nuclear-capable B-52 bombers in um, bo- bombers within Australia. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me on the program. Um, I think the first thing uh, I felt was uh, was was uh, a, a sense of 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 shock at how far gone the process of uh, of the war drive and its uh, it's selling to the Australian public has gone. Because if you think of it, this decision to, uh, to, to start preparing to base up to six uh, B-52 strategic bombers, which are, you know, one of the primary ways, apart from missiles, that uh, nuclear weapons could be uh, uh, deployed, came without any notification, formal notification by the government to the public, not even to the parliament. This process had been going on. Obviously, a deal had been made in secret. And the only way that the Four Corners journalists discovered it was through a process of discovery of U.S. documents. And they actually you know, found out that um, there was this plan to build hangars in the Tyndale uh, Air Force Base in the Northern Territory to house these things. Uh, and the second thing that was shocking about it was the justification for this, as the program laid out, came from a string of neoconservative armed industry and U.S. military-funded American think tanks. They all talked about this, you know, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Center for New American Security, the American Enterprise Institute, an infamous right-wing think tank funded by Charles Koch, climate denier, billionaire, right-wing, and the RAND Corporation, funded primarily by the U.S. military. And there's all these people they interviewed, and they're all talking up, you know, war with China. And of course, it's presented in a very jaundiced way. It's presented as a war that sparked over a Chinese, you know, a future Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And there's no discussion about, you know, hello, uh, what's the basis for this? You know, is, is, is this a real prospect? Uh, you know, that is, that is rushed through. We're straight into a discussion of, you know, war games that they've carried out simulations of war and the conclusion of this and in fact this is a pitch you could say it's a direct pitch by the u.s military and by the arms industry is for australia to to become an even bigger you know effectively land uh you know land base aircraft carrier and port uh, for u.s military power in the asia pacific Hi Peter, it's Sue here. Um, just another another question. 
Um, I was listening to an interview with one of the government ministers about these um, US B-52 bombers and they were trying to justify it on the basis, oh, yes, they have the potential to be nuclear armed, but they won't be nuclear armed. I mean, to me, this max of, you know, you open the door an inch and then uh, you have to open it <laughs> by a metre or something uh, or more um, just to try and lull us into a false sense of security about the nuclear element. So there's, a, you know, obviously if these are nuclear-capable uh, B-52 bombers um, and then this combined with the nuclear submarines, which they still seem determined to buy, um, this really starts to take Australia way down the nuclear path. What do you think about that? Well, I think, you know, clearly, first of all, as you say, um, you know, it's uh, today they will say perhaps these are not carrying nuclear weapons right now. But, um, you know, once they're based here, once the whole setup is deployed, and the setup is is one of you know uh, interoperab- interoperability. You know they're they're basically ready to fight a, a big war together, Australia, United States. Now all they need to do is to at any point uh, put out some you know apparent justification for a further step up, a further escalation, and 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 then they 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 say okay, well you know in this situation we have to let them be nuclear. The other thing, Sue, you remember from back in the day, back in the day when we were actually fighting and nearly winning a total ban on U.S. military ship visits, you know, which was one in New Zealand out of the anti-war movement decades ago. You remember back then, mm-hmm. there was this policy by the United States Navy uh, neither to confirm or deny that they were carrying nuclear weapons. So that's another element I think you have to take into account. How the hell do we know uh, they're telling the truth? Well, as you um, just mentioned before in the interview, the fact that this deal for these bombers to be stationed, nuclear-capable bombers to be stationed at Tyndall Air Base was not reported anywhere and journalists had to find out about it through a paper trail of US documents. So it means that um, Australians won't be notified if there's nuclear weapons on board. And we also know the secrecy for uh, you know anti-war activists and peace activists going way back from when there were big campaigns around these issues that uh, it was very difficult to find out what was happening at Pine Gap, for example, where many activists got arrested over the years for protests outside Pine Gap, but it was clouded in utmost secrecy. Totally. It's, there's so much secrecy in this whole business, and I think it draws attention to, I think, an important uh, campaign that's going on in Australia, and that's the Australian War Powers Reform. And what this highlights is that Australia is one of those countries where the uh, power to, to launch war is, is not subject to a vote in Parliament. Now, even in the United States, technically, uh, such a decision has to be taken to, to Congress. So every U.S. president over the last few years has found ways and means to sort of uh, manoeuvre between this obligation. 
but you know they have the formal obligation. In so many days, they're supposed to, to put it to Congress. In Australia, it is left to the executive, to the government, to make that decision. And therefore, there's this whole area where, you know, in the so-called democracy, there is no democratic decision-making process. There's no democratic oversight. And the entire military area, you know, as you know, is covered in secrecy. And that, uh, that, that famous phrase that uh, members of the previous Morrison government uh, used to say, uh, you know, we're not going to go into detail about this, was extended into uh, government statements and, and, and media, um, media conferences about refugees. Now, if they're not going to tell us about things associated with refugees, do you think they are going to tell us all the detail voluntarily about uh, their war plans in the region? Because make no mistake, the fundamental issue here is not some sort of concern about Taiwan. And yes, you know, I think most people in the world would support, as we do, the idea that Taiwan should never be forcibly integrated into China. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a horrible prospect. That's fine. But that is not the real issue here. That is not the real reason for this huge escalation in, in, in the preparations for war with China. Because at the heart of this, going way back to under the Obama regime's pivot to Asia, and even before then, the real objective of all this military build-up is very simple. And it has been stated in numerous documents to preserve U.S. and allied military supremacy in the Asia-Pacific. That's the objective. The rest of it is actually excuse, it's justification, it's propaganda to sell that objective. And um, going, I want to go into kind of like the next kind of aspect of um, of the guest this discussion, and I think it's kind of important um, that we actually, you know, even at Free CR and within Green Left, that we actually have we have to have a response to this because there's very much kind of like a conscious sort of campaign, you know, by the ruling class within uh, within Australia and um, and the United States um, to basically, you know, this anti sort of China to to develop kind of anti-China kind of sentiment in, in Australia and to kind of normalise this idea that we want, that we would have to go at war with China. And I guess I want to kind of hear your kind of response to, you know, your political kind of response to that and, you know, how we can actually challenge that kind of agent, that kind of, um, that sentiment that is clearly being drummed up by a ruling class. I think exposing the real objectives of the military build-up is one part of it. Um, we have to keep reminding people not just to, to fall for the, fall for the, for, for, for the argument that this is all about helping defend little Taiwan from big aggressive China. We've got to challenge that argument because that's the way they're currently framing it. Now, you know, that's the most successful way. Back in the time of the Trump administration, the US, the, pre- the US president there fielded a different kind of argument you know, a more overtly racist argument, trying to blame China for deliberately uh, spreading COVID-19. You know, (laughs) that level. And and it's not to say that some of that kind of outright racist 
argumentation didn't have some purchase in Australia. It did. Uh, not very far from where I live in Sydney, outside uh, the, um, um, the the Chinese consulate, there was an incident of one of these raving right-wing lunatics out there screaming, uh, using a um, cracking a whip at people coming past, and you know it was all about you know evil China who had uh, you know developed the Wuhan virus, uh, you know and and. Uh, there was a period, I think you probably saw it in Melbourne as well, where, you know, right-wingers were going around putting graffiti up on the wall about the Wuhan virus. So there's a sort of naked, racist, anti-Chinese campaign going on. But, of course, the most successful argument, particularly in the wake of the war in Ukraine, or Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is to use this prospect of, uh, of, of, of um, you know, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan as an excuse uh, you know, for 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 um, the military build-up by Australia and the United States, and uh, you know the the, the the strengthening, the deepening of the inter- of, of the war alliances between them, including you know the deal, the AUKUS deal to get uh, nuclear-powered submarines. Um, so I think we have to take this up, and I. We also need to start really building the anti-war and peace movement in this country. Uh, now, we know they're at a relatively low ebb. The size of the protests that these organizations have called uh, around the country recently, um, particularly to address the AUKUS deal, has been only in the hundreds. But for people, um, and I think Sue uh, as, as, as well as myself, who have been through uh, anti-war struggles from the Vietnam War and on, uh, we have seen uh, the anti-war movements rise and fall. And very often the preparation, the critical preparation for the next major upsurge of anti-war sentiment uh, is in the period before. So it's important to nurture these alliances and to, and to try and build them up because a, a, a big fight needs to be had. In Australia... You know, one of the great things today in politics, and I was reminded of this, I was reminded of this when I went to the to, to the Sydney Vigil for Justice for Cassius Turvey uh, 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 yesterday, was it? Yeah. And um, day before yesterday. And uh, the great thing is that the new generation of First Nations activists constantly remind people you know, using the term the, colon- the colony, they remind people that our state apparatus, our government, is not ours. It's theirs. It's not only theirs, it is imperialist. It is the government of the war makers, the government of the exploiters. It is the government of the tiny group of wealthy people who currently dominate and exploit the world economically. And the military aspect is just another aspect of this. Economics, by another means, is how the imperial war machine operates. And that's what we're talking about. That's what we're up against. And I think we can popularise this, and we have to popularise this idea if we are to stop you know, a very dangerous race to war. 
Right. Um, thanks for that, Peter. We're kind of running a bit out of time, and I guess I wonder if you kind of had any sort of final comments you'd like to add. Uh, just a point of, of, of information. For the previous uh, pre-recorded interview you did, the Malaysian general elections are coming up on November 15th, because uh, I think that was the date that you were missing. Thanks very much for having me on today. All right. Well, thanks. Um, thank you very much, um, Peter. I think, yeah, this is a, was a kind of very kind of important kind of discussion. And I think, yeah, this is going to be something that we're going to have to keep regularly covering uh, in Green Left Radio, especially as as the ruling class keeps um, bringing, um, building up the kind of propaganda against China. All right. Thanks, Peter. Okay. Um, so, um, we're just getting, um, we're just, um, t- talking to Peter Boyle about the recent, um, kind of announcements, um, um, about, of the, of the Australian government, um, you know, the US having, um, sending, um, big B-52 bombers over the kind of, over, over Darwin. Um, so yeah, I guess, um, we're getting into the kind of, um, um, to the end of kind of the program. And I guess, um, Sue, do you sort of have any final sort of things you want to add? Well, I guess there's not enough time to talk about it today, but I think certainly our next program we'll want to talk about the Labor Party's industrial relations bill, um, what it, how it improves things, but also how it keeps some things the same as well. Um, it's, you know, definitely better than what we've got, but it isn't going to be a magic bullet for workers to, um, get all of their rights. And so um, we'll have more of that discussion next week, next Friday. And certainly we'll also start covering this plus all sorts of other issues in Green Left. Um, and people can, as well as listening to Green Left Radio, people can become a supporter for Green Left. Um, you can check out the Green Left website and become a supporter that way. You can check out Green Left's Facebook um, you can check out Green Left's Twitter as well. All right. Well, um, like to thank all our listeners again, and yeah, definitely become a subscriber of Green Left. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR eight five five AM, and stay tuned for Earth Matters, which is coming after this. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1800 634 206. Arise you workers from the slumbers, arise you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise! We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back, reds underneath your beds and that crap.